Hey, good morning. So glad that you're here. We've changed things up just a little bit today, just a little teaching before we get into the worship. Last week, we launched a series on this book of Philippians. We're calling it While We Wait, and it fits because even though you're in lockdown and, and we're in lockdown, uh, so was Paul. And when Paul was under uh, imprisonment in Rome, he wrote this letter to some very good friends of his. In fact, hundreds of years ago, Paul wrote this ancient letter to this group of Jesus followers that lived in this city called Philippi, this Greek city that was a long way from Jerusalem, but very important and very special to Paul. And the words that he shares are going to give us some guidance, give us some help as we try to find our way through this time. Because my guess is you have questions and you have concerns, and you're wondering some things about God. Is he still who he says he is? Do you have some issues about your fears and your anxieties that you're trying to sort out? Maybe there have been some cracks in your family relationships that have shown up, and you're trying to sort through how to make this work during this time, and Paul will give us some guidance all along the way. So last week you heard some people from our church read uh, the opening verses of uh, the book of Philippians, and one of the verses that you heard was this verse here. He says this, in my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I think it was Kathy Talley from our church that read this verse. Here's what's interesting about this verse. We know about this first day. We know what this first day was like because the book of Acts tells us. So if you go back a bit to understand the context of Philippians and what's happening in this, this time with Paul and these people, even though he's in prison in Rome right now, Paul's talking about a moment in time that happened 10 years before. So the, the last half of the book of Acts is really all about Paul's journeys across the world. Once Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, and he is then kind of affirmed by the, the Jewish men and women who helped start the first Christian churches, he launches out and he takes people with him and he travels all over the world. And as he does so, he's sharing the message of Jesus. In fact, in all of Paul's writings, his goal is to lay the life and death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus against the reality of his own life. This is what he teaches. It's the essence of the gospel, and it's how Paul, in fact, lives his life. And as he does so in the book of Acts, he finds himself going all over this area of the world, and he ends up in a moment in this place called Philippi. So he makes this journey with some friends of his, a new friend named Silas who's on this trip with him. Along the way, they pick up a young protege named Timothy, and one of his best friends, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is going to chronicle this journey that they take. And as they take this journey, they go up north of Jerusalem, across the southern part of modern-day Turkey, and eventually across the Aegean Sea. And then they end up in this Greek town, larger area called Macedonia, city called Philippi. And when they end up in this city, some interesting things begin to happen and begin to unfold. Luke tells us about their travels. He gives us the details because he's a historian. He's going to be all about the details, and he's with them on this journey. That's why it says we. From Troas, we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. All of these are places that we can identify in a geographic way. From there, we went and traveled to Philippi. It's a, it's a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. 
Now, as they arrive, Paul does what any smart missionary or person who's trying to at least contextualize the gospel wherever they are, on the Sabbath, he's going to find himself looking for believers. In fact, that's what Luke says. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city, gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. The reason they went down by the river, well, in almost every other city, Paul would be looking for a synagogue or a place of Jewish worship. But the Roman colony of Philippi didn't have that many Jewish men and women. It takes 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue, and odds are most of the occupants, the residents of Philippi, would have been Gentile. And in fact, they were most likely Roman centurions and soldiers that were retired and had gone off to this beautiful city of Philippi to live out the rest of their days. And Paul knows this, and he knows that there aren't many Jewish people around, and so he goes down to the river where he hopes to find a group of God-fearers or people that are seeking spiritually, and he does. He gets to know some of the people there. In fact, this is where he finds the first Philippian convert. Her name is Lydia, and she's a wealthy woman, and she's doing her work, and he has a conversation with her about Jesus, and she knows and fears God, and, and she becomes Paul's first convert in the city. In fact, because of her wealth and her prominent standing in the community, odds are the church, after Paul leaves Philippi and in years to come, would meet in her home on the Sabbath. Long before anything is more firmly established as a church, this is the church to Paul. It's a group of people who gather, who know something about Jesus. And then Luke gives us this other little interesting story about their time in Philippi, and it follows this, chronicles this event right after Lydia's conversion. One day we were going down to the place of prayer. doesn't say it was the Sabbath. could have been any weekday. We met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. Interesting. I don't know how this worked. I don't know if it was accurate or, or what, but she earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. And so it could be that it was a scam. It could be that what she said was true and accurate. I don't know, but we do find out here that there is this spirit, not of God. God has one spirit, the Holy Spirit, but there's this spirit, demonic, that allows this girl to tell the future, and her masters make use of this. In fact, she's the reason they can earn an income, and she's a slave. They, they own her, and as she encounters Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, as they're walking back and forth every day to the river, she begins to latch on to them. And here's what happens. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. So she's a little irritating and she's kind of up in their business. These men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Now, this is interesting because I think, well, maybe she, when she tells the future, she's right. Maybe she hits it spot on and that's exactly why these men were able to in fact, make money off of her future telling because she's accurate. Because when she says this about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, I mean, she's right. That's why they're there. And that's what they're doing in Philippi. But she does this in such an obnoxious way. She's not very socially conscious. And she keeps doing it with Paul and with all his friends and kind of ruining the the message before Paul gets a chance to even to get to know anybody or, or maybe introduce himself or build some sort of relationship. 
And so finally, Paul gets irritated and exasperated. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, one translation says annoyed, that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly, this demon left her. And now her skill is gone. She has no ability to tell the future. She's just a normal, everyday, average person without this unique ability. This is the only exorcism, the only healing, if you will, that I know of that occurs in Scripture out of annoyance, out of exasperation. I mean, Paul just turns around one day, not because necessarily he's concerned about her well-being or, or because he wants to thwart the money that these men are going to make. He just is just tired of her yapping. And finally, he just says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And that's exactly what happens. Now, her owners, the ones that used her for profit, they're mad. I mean, they're, they're really mad. Luke says this, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. That's important to maybe pay attention to what's going on right now in this story. Paul would later write to Timothy these words. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, we have misquoted that throughout history and our culture, and we talk about money being the root of all kinds of evil, but that's not the case here. Paul makes it clear that it is the love of money. It's the love of money that can give root and give foundation to all kinds of evil, selfish ambition, insecurity, anxiety, worry, putting your hope in the wrong places. And of course, Various scriptures are coming to mind for you, maybe. The story of the rich young ruler who decided that he would hang on to everything he had as opposed to living for the eternity that Jesus was offering him. It's interesting to watch the reaction of these two men. Once their financial hopes, once their hopes of wealth were shattered. And once that occurs, well, they take a very insidious approach to Paul and Silas. And Luke and Timothy watch all of it go down. And you can see this playing out in our culture every day. Look, if you interfere with someone's financial picture, then you will see some of humanity's worst possible behavior every time. You might even see people who are willing to place their financial status as a higher priority than other people's health and survival. And in this story, these men decide that now that their hopes of wealth are now shattered, well, they grab Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace, and they begin to make a case. They say this, the whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. Now, remember, this is a, it's a Roman colony, mostly Gentiles. The, the Jews and Romans didn't get along. I mean, they tried hard to live in peace in this area of the world, but the, the tension was just below the surface, and it wouldn't take much to poke it and make everything come unraveled. They had learned to tolerate each other, but just barely. And the owners lay out a couple of pretty big lies. It's, of course, the city's not in an uproar because of these Jews. And then they say this, they are teaching customs 
that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Also not true at all. And so once they lay these lies out, and once they hold up these two foreigners, and of course, again, Luke and Timothy are watching as Paul and Silas are now put on the hot seat. Here's what happens, and this isn't very unusual, of course. We see this happen all the time. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. And so they were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. This kind of thing always happens when a mob gets out of control. They're driven by emotion. They're driven by a couple of significant untruths. And it's not just the mob that makes this happen, though. The, the city officials are the ones that have to sanction the punishment that's going to occur. And so in front of the crowd, Paul and Silas, their friends looking on, they're stripped naked, bare naked, humiliated and embarrassed. And they're severely beaten with wooden rods and punished before anything can be verified or established as truth. And then they're put in prison immediately in this city of Philippi. In fact, Luke tells us this about the jailer. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Now, I don't know what your worst day looks like, but this is a bad day. I mean, talk about a lockdown. Talk about an unexpected turn of events. I mean, Paul and Silas and their friends, they were just going down to the river to share maybe some faith stories or help encourage some new believers or maybe talk to some of Lydia's friends. And as a result, they end up sometime later in that day naked, and bruised and beaten and locked into prison. And they're not going anywhere. The jailer has made sure of it. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul and Silas were new friends on this journey. Silas was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And, and at that time, he joined Paul for this second missionary journey. I mean, at some point, Silas had to look over at Paul and say, does this always happen? What is going on here? I mean, I thought we were just going to share Jesus with people. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in a terrible and difficult circumstance. Now they're in prison. They're in the center of it. And their feet are locked down. They're in stocks and probably in chains. And here's what happens while they're in prison. Around midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening in. Now, I don't know what it's been like for you through this lockdown. I don't know if you found yourself in moments of hopelessness. It could be that you found yourself in moments of wondering where God's presence seems to be. If you're emotionally driven, if you've had anxiety rise up, if you've had some anger, whatever the issues that you've dealt with emotionally, if you're going through some of the stages of grief that we even talked about last week, then it could be that you are searching for words, not just even in your prayers to God, or it could be that you're just searching for words with each other, in your relationships with the people that you live with, or those that are distant from you that you're connecting with, either over the internet or over the phone. 
Sometimes we run out of words. And when we run out of words to express our feelings or emotions, we can often shut down. Paul said it this way, that that sometimes when we pray, we have just groanings that come up and the Holy Spirit intercedes and translates those groanings to God. Sometimes what happens when we pray, well, the only really way to classify it is is what they did. They sang hymns to God. In other words, we're, we're using the words that other people have written to help express what's going on deep in our heart. And it might even be that these hymns were words that they didn't feel, maybe didn't even understand in the context of their circumstances. Paul and Silas, humans who had gone through such a humiliating day, now find themselves locked down and in prison are trying to find a way to express their hope to God. These lyrics that we'll sing here in just a moment, they'll help us maybe express some of our feelings. Our hope is that these lyrics that we'll sing as Josh and Amy lead us in worship will guide us toward a place of maybe clinging to the truths that we know are real, but that we feel are a little bit distant. I mean, we'll be singing words like this, Blessed Redeemer, You have set the captive free. I don't know if those lyrics existed for Paul and Silas in hymns, but that would have been a lyric that would have been meaningful and helpful to them. You'll hear words like this as we sing together. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Up from the ashes, hope will rise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. You may feel like you are surrounded by lack of hope, maybe despair, discouragement, or maybe just a a strong sense of apathy has set into your heart. And it may look like you're surrounded, but it could be that you come to realize through these lyrics that we are surrounded by God. Just picture Paul and Silas in the middle of this prison. They're locked down and the prisoners are listening. As they sing these hymns, no doubt some of the themes that you just sang about, that we just worship together, and we can feel you worshiping, we can feel your hearts inclined towards God, and in the middle of this, this very quiet and interesting scene in, the, in this jail, as their words are echoing and the prisoners are silenced around midnight, the earth began to shake. And as the earth began to shake, the prison doors busted open, and Paul and Silas's chains fell off of them. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. It was everyone's chains. All of the prisoners, their chains fell off. And, of course, the jailer freaked. He completely freaked because he knew, of course, the prisoners are going to run. And when they run, and then my boss shows up and his boss shows up, eventually I'm going to be the one that's held responsible, which meant he would be put to death. And so he began to end his own life, and Paul silenced him and said, be still, be still, be quiet, we're all here, nobody's left. And of course, the jailer in that second realized, I don't know who Paul and Silas were singing to, but I want to know that God. And he asked this very simple question, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul and Silas began to share the gospel, the, the second convert that we know of. Well, probably not the second, but second past Lydia and her household, and he's saved. When he writes these words, he's going to explain to the Philippians, look, I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So when Paul says this, They know what's happened. They have gotten word where he is, that he's in prison, 
and in Rome. He has a, he has a partnership with them. He says earlier, and you heard these words uh, quoted by some people in our church last week, it's right for me to feel this way about you. The, the affinity that Paul feels with the Philippian church goes all the way back to this, this time when he found himself in jail in that city. And now 10 years later, he's in prison again. And what has happened to Paul even now is serving to advance the gospel. It's this partnership. It's the same partnership that I feel with you, and it's the same partnership that I feel with the people that started this church. And for some of you, these are names and and faces that you'll know. It's a bittersweet weekend here at Castle Oaks. It's our 20th anniversary. This is probably the closest weekend to the weekend in which we as a church would be celebrating 20 years of church life. Uh, early in the year 2000, the church began to hold some preview services, but then close to this weekend, they launched and had their very first weekly church service. It's a powerful time in the life of our church, and this weekend was supposed to be such a celebration. I mean, we were going to have an uh, incredible extravaganza dinner and celebration last night, and of course, this was supposed to be a service that included some very special people in the history of our church that I want to be sure you at least see their names and faces today. And uh, if you're not familiar with the history of Castle Oaks, then hopefully over the next several months you'll get a chance. But l- let me remind you of this, that this is Herb and Paula Frost. Uh, you'll see these pictures right there on your screen. They are the first uh, pastor and wife of our church. Uh, they helped plant this church Herb now works for the ECC, and uh, this weekend, Herb and Paula and many of their family were going to be present. They will be for the future coming uh, celebration that we'll have, but we all owe a debt to the sacrifice and the hard work that Herb and Paula invested in the life of this church. It's one thing to show up and till a field that's already been tilled. It's one thing to plant where things have already been planted and in the previous year's crop has been plowed under. It's a completely different kind of work to show up and prepare a field that has never been planted, and that's what a church planter does. And so the work that Herb and Paula did initially paved the way for everyone that would come after. And that's not just true for Herb and Paula, it's true for every one of our charter members And those folks that decided, we will put a work where there has not been a work. We will start a church where there has not been a church. And we owe a debt that is unspeakable in size and magnitude to each of them. It's Herb and Paula. And you'll get to meet them in October when they come for our celebration. And some of you will get to greet them as old friends. These are faces that are probably familiar to most of you. It's the the pastor and uh, wife, uh, Paul and Rebecca Lassard, that followed uh, the Frosts and just preceded our ministry here. And Paul and Rebecca now have made their way back to Chicago. They're watching right now from Chicago, and we're thrilled that they are a part of our church family still, even though they have recently kind of moved from Castle Rock to make their home as he works for the denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And we're grateful for how Paul built his humble and thoughtful DNA into the life of this church, really absolutely picking up where Herb and Paula left off, taking the baton and taking it further down the road. We're in the building we're in because of the leadership team and the church and the sacrificial giving and Paul's leadership during a time of really important and key transition. And I would call Paul a dear friend, one that has 
uh, in many ways held my hand through this transition into the covenant world, especially as I become somebody that serves next following him, and we're grateful for him. So a few pictures I want you to see. I'd love to show you 100 or 200 of the pictures that I've reviewed looking back over the history of the life of our church, but there's just a few that I think you ought to catch today. This is a picture of the church body, we think sometime around 2009. And this is in front of the building that the church met in at that time. It is now the task force building that is on the other end of Park Street. Not that far from us, but just down the road. And you can drive down there and see the task force building. The front looks fairly much the same. The brick and stone, of course, the old graphic is not there and our old logo isn't there. But the task force meets there today and helps take care of the hurting and the hungry. But these are the people that have gone before us. Many of them are still a part of our church, and some have moved away or moved on to other church bodies, but these are the folks that made up the body of Castle Oaks at that time. Let me show you another picture that will be interesting to those of you. This is our cafe. This is uh, the cafe of the church as it was when we purchased the church building before it was transformed and transitioned. And if you have enough time and if your screen is big enough, you can kind of pay attention to some of the people that are sitting there, and you'll see the tallies, and you'll see some other people, a few Habercates in there, Bruce Hawther, and many others that are present in this picture. This was before the second floor was put into the cafe, before the, the church was really transitioned to become what we know and see and use each week with Castle Oaks Church. And so, as we get closer to a very special day that we have planned October 30th, we want to say this on this day, this special anniversary day. We hold the history of this church with significant reverence and gratitude. This partnership with the gospel that Paul describes with the Philippian church, we have with some of the names and faces that you've seen today. And we carry the baton, so we look to the past and we're grateful and thoughtful and know that we would not be here today without the people that came before us. But we also know that we have a responsibility in the days to come. And this is what Paul is explaining to the Philippians. And this is why he says to them this. Look, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened, even though I'm in prison, and you remember when I was in prison before, is actually serving to advance the gospel. And as he explains this, he's probably in Rome. He's probably in the, the capital city. He's probably chained to some prison guards. And he's probably dictating this to a friend who has come to help him write this letter. And then he says this, for everyone here, this is why it's working for him, everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. In chains, and Paul says the response has been this, that it hasn't created fear. Oh no, what, what if we're in prison like Paul? What if we experience hardships like him? It's had the, in fact, it's had the opposite effect. Because Paul is in chains, because Paul is in prison, we can speak more boldly. If he can endure it, so can we. If he can suffer through it, then we are brothers and sisters with him. Now, Paul doesn't know what the outcome of his imprisonment will be. He's waiting a trial. And this trial could mean that he's released and free to go preach and do the ministry that he has been doing, or it could also and might likely mean his death. This is what he anticipates. Facing his death, 
he has time to think and time to ponder about his life, about what it means, about what it means to live a life that is worth the calling that he has been given, about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and how it applies to his life itself. What is he even living for? Why is he here? How should he spend his time? Where should his energy be put? Maybe you're asking some of the same questions as your life has been stripped of some of the things that have been really so meaningful. And as we look at our lives in light of this pandemic, and we're asking the question about what it might look like post-pandemic, what it might look like when we begin to engage in some of the activities that were a part of our lives before all of this happened, Paul makes one of the most profound statements about how this all fits together. And when he does, this is what he says. For me, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, in just these few short words, gives one of the most profound statements about the purpose of his life and how he sees his life playing out. It's the purpose of my life. It's the purpose of your life. And as he says this, he'll spend a good part of Philippians fleshing this out. What does it mean? What does it look like to live is Christ? What does this statement mean? John says it well in one of his later letters when he says this, we live like Jesus here in this world. Paul would say, for to me to live is Christ. John says it this way, we live like Jesus here in this world. So what does it mean to live is Christ? To live means to love our enemies, means to forgive the way Jesus forgives. It means to live out the words of Jesus every day in a hundred or a thousand or more different ways, one day at a time. It means we feed the hungry. It means we clothe the naked. It means we visit the lonely. It means we use our energy, our words, our hearts, and our minds and our strength to bring the kingdom of God to earth every day in any way possible. It means that we seek to transform our communities to communities of truth and hope, that we drive away anxiety and fear so that we can thoughtfully and purposefully use what we have to make God's kingdom present right here, exactly what Jesus prayed. It means that we will live out the words of Jesus, that we will continually compare the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act with the mandates that Jesus gives throughout the Gospels over and over again. It means that we will decide that when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, that we will continually bring our anxiety and our fear before him and allow him to sort out what's happening in our hearts. It means that we will live out the truth of these words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It means that in my relationships, something of Jesus shows up every day, that I continually offer myself and surrender to him. I can easily give myself to any relationship. I can easily give anxiety or jealousy or anger or my own ideas, but I will continually surrender it to him in a way that allows Jesus to work in and through me. First, in the way that I surrender and then secondly, in the way that I love, in the way that I build relationships, in the way that I share my perspective about what's going on, 
in the way that I bring calm to people who are unsure about the future. And then this incredible thing that he says, that if I live is Christ, I also die is gain. In other words, death has no grip on me. The fear of death, even the fear of uncertainty, does not control my life. Fear to the slavery of death has been conquered. And every day I remind myself that I live also, not just to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, but I live knowing that my future is secure, that my debt has been paid, that I am reconciled and redeemed, and that God is with me here in this earth and in the kingdom to come. I remember that I do not find my worth or my security in the market or in my job or even in what I hope will occur down the road financially or in any other way, but I believe and trust that God is with me. Lord, we ask in this moment that you would allow that trust, Paul's statement, to become alive and real to each one of us. May we live this day with this as our mantra and truth, our command, our marching orders, our hope, and our inspiration, that to live is Christ. And so may Christ show up in my interactions, in my words, in my heart, and in my mind. And may I live this way knowing that Paul's second half of this statement is also true, Lord, that there is a heaven that awaits, there is a peace that awaits that passes all understanding. And when I live this way, your kingdom comes to earth. This is our hope and this is our prayer. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray, amen. And so this week, may you live with this as the truth behind your life, your actions, your words, your heart and your mind. For to us, to live brings Jesus to the world. And we do not fear, because when we die, we have everything to gain. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night.